Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. We're about to read a 37-verse description of a tent. And again, biblically speaking, as we just sang from Psalm 84, our response shouldn't be, I don't want to know this much about the tent. Stop talking, God. It should be, this is a lovely tent. I want to be in God's tent. Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains woven of fine linen thread and blue and purple and scarlet yarn with artistic designs of cherubim you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set And likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains together with the clasps, so that it may be one tabernacle. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make eleven curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits, and the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. You shall couple 5 curtains by themselves, 6 curtains by themselves, you shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the curtain on the edge of the curtain of the second set. You shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent, and a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be twenty boards, and there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. From the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards. You shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them, and it shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. 
The middle bars shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make the rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. You shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. You shall make a veil woven of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen thread. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. You shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen thread made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would focus our minds. Help us to pay attention to your house, because we love you, the designer and the occupant of the house. Father, thank you that you deign to come and dwell with your people in a tent in the wilderness wanderings. Thank you that in Christ you have come and pitched your tent among us as one of us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen me to speak accurately about your word. Help us all to listen carefully so that we might grow up and produce fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is quite a tent. There's a long description just in this chapter, and obviously there are more chapters before and after this one. And it's not even a particularly exciting tent. Some of the more exciting things are the comments that have been made about this tent. I really like the 19th century Scotsman who uh, came up with all these designs and proved that the tabernacle had a pitched triangular roof and all this stuff because otherwise it would collapse in the snow, he said, and or leak rain when it rained as if the Israelites were traveling through Scotland instead of through Sinai where it doesn't rain or snow. Uh, Anyway... We have this chapter that seems to be long on detail and short on drama. (coughs) And the reason is that God cares about his dwelling place. And he's saying to us, you should care about my dwelling place too. Most of us spend quite a lot of effort on our homes, time in our homes, remodeling, painting, getting them just so. We like the way they are, or we don't like the way they are, and we're proud of how we've done them up, and we like to grab people and tell them, hey, look what I did in my home. And we realize pretty quickly that people really don't care. And the longer you spend telling them about your wonderful triumph of home repair, the more they show signs of wanting to run away. God really doesn't care. He says, this is my home. And I am going to tell you about it. And I am going to describe it in detail. His attitude is, people should care. You should care. 
about my home. I want you to see this tent in which I live, and I want you to be impressed. God came and dwelt among his people, and he wants us to admire that. It's only right that we should admire it. So that's part of it. The other part of it is, even this chapter, right, 29 verses all about how many bars and boards and tent curtains God lives under. The overall effect is to emphasize not the accessibility of the divine, but the inaccessibility. God is underneath so many layers, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get to see him. And of course, we'll talk about that, the limitations of the tabernacle. At the end of the day, this building is 10 by 30 cubits. That is uh, 15 by 45 feet. Not exactly a large building. But God, nonetheless, was there dwelling among his people. Emphasizing both his presence, I'm with you, but also his transcendence, his holiness. I am buried under four layers of curtains, boards, tents, and this mountain of detail that almost makes you get lost and say, what is this tent? I don't understand what I'm, what's being described to me anymore by about verse 2. So let's look at that and see if we can kind of reconstruct some of the details. Here's the basic structure that's being conveyed and then the spiritual lessons. The tabernacle is a way of access to God, but it is not a perfect or even a sufficient way of access to God. So on a regular tour, if you've ever taken a tour, the guide points out certain things and disregards other things. Obviously, the guide doesn't have time to comment on every last thing. And so it is with this literary tour of God's house. We hear a great deal about certain things, nothing at all about other things. What was the floor of the tabernacle? The text never says. But all the details that are here are in service of the overall point, which is that God dwells with his people. And Moses piles on the details to make it abundantly obvious that clearly, yes, God does dwell with his people. It's not just made up. It's very clear based on every last thing, every part of the house that is described. Oh, Verses 1 to 14 describe four layers of curtains. And the first two layers get almost all of the space. The first layer is white linen. So fine linen, white and clean, which we also see appearing in Revelation is the clothing of heaven. This, there's no death allowed in the presence of God except sacrificial death. So this fabric is the fabric that is closest to to the Almighty, a plant-based fabric, linen made from flax. And then, not only is it white, but there's blue, purple, and scarlet yarn embroidering it, and with artistic designs of cherubim. To remind you, this is the throne room of God. We have the curtains. They're not blank white curtains. They're curtains with pictures of cherubim there. Now, I have never been in a church building that took this literally and had cherubim painted on the walls. That would be pretty amazing, especially if you could paint them like the ones in the British Museum that I talked about last week that are nine feet tall, 
and incredibly imposing with the feet of a bull and the body of a bull, but the head of a man and a beard and a big old sword. But anyway, that was what you saw when you walked into the tabernacle. Uh, second, the second layer was goat hair curtains, of which tents were typically made in that era. Right Today you think tent fabric, you think that thin nylon stuff. In that day, when they thought tent fabric, they thought we shave our black goats, we take their hair and mat it into this felt-like fabric, that's our tent. That's the second layer in the tabernacle. Again, this is created without death. You just shave the goat. And then the fourth, third and fourth layer are sheep leather and marine leather. Why is the sheep leather dyed red? We don't know. It just says it's dyed red. The bottom line is God loves color. More than the symbolism of this color or that color or the pump in there that can't be shut off for some reason. More than the symbolism of any particular color, God loves color. If you look out the window you see the Lord made a colorful world. He did not make a drab world, and he does not want a drab house. Now, if, this, if the church is the house of God today, which it is, the New Testament is very clear about that, not the physical structure, but us, the people, we are the temple of the living God, then we're not a drab group of people here in this church. And that's good. We're supposed to be colorful. The Lord doesn't want us all to think alike, look alike, talk alike, and have boring lives. So, then there's this wooden frame over which the four kinds of curtains were stretched. And it appears to refer to upright boards, probably something along the lines of how houses are built to this day, with upright boards going along in a row, making a wall. But then instead of covering that with large pieces of wood, and they just stretched the curtains right over the top. So you have walls on three sides and then curtain, tent curtain, covering that all the way along. So no wonder the Scottish architect said, yeah, in the, in the snow, that thing is not going to stand up. There's no snow in Sinai. It's hot. There's not much rain there either. God made a tent that was suitable for the area in which they were. This tent didn't have to shed a lot of snow load. So the text goes on to note then, after describing the wooden walls on three sides and curtains over the top, that the text does not contain all the information God gave Moses. God showed Moses this pattern on the mountain, verse 30. Because... Exodus is just a literary tool. This is not a full-blown set of architectural plans. If it were, if it were truly graduating from a document of general interest into a document of technical architectural specifications, it would no longer be readable for most of us. I don't read architectural plans. I dare say most of you don't either. And there's no exploded diagram of the tabernacle in here with parts A through XJ labeled and numbered and so on, because God is not speaking just to architects. He's telling us, this is my house, this is what it's like, admire, my house is lovely. 
So we have a little bit on the furniture in the last section of the chapter. Uh, we have mostly about the veil. The overall tent, as I said, is 10 by 30 cubits. The veil is hung 20 cubits inside the door. So we have a tent that's turned into a two-room tent by hanging up this veil on four wooden uprights. It's a two-room tent, one larger room, 20 cubits long, one smaller room, 10 cubits long. So the back room is 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. It's a perfect cube. Or No, that's in the, the temple, excuse me. Back room is 10 cubits long, but it's more than 10 cubits high. So anyway, the veil is hung 20 cubits inside. God's house, like your house, like my house, has a distinction between public and private space. There are public rooms in every house, the kitchen, dining room, the living room, and then there are private rooms, the bedrooms and the bathroom. And God has a two-room house. One room is more public, one room more private. Into the more public room, the priests come every day to see the, to the showbread, tend the lamp, offer the incense on the incense altar. Into the private room, the priest comes only once a year. So it is the special inner sanctum. There's this distinction there in the house of God. Within the private room, you find the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this last week. God keeps furniture in his house to forgive sins, to restore relationship. Come into someone's house, you see what they have. And what God has is this thing, this Ark of the Covenant, that represents his commitment to his people and to his covenant with them, and also that says, I wash away your sins. That's a pretty amazing piece of furniture to see in the house of God. Then there's the table for eating at. There's the menorah, the lampstand to light up the room. The light's on in somebody's home. We talked about this furniture last week. I want to contrast this for just a minute with the bare minimum furnishing that is mentioned in what First Kings that the Shunammite woman offered to Elijah. She had an extra room in her house that she wanted to fit out for the prophet. And she told her husband, let's get this thing ready with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Right? That's the bare minimum furniture for one person. Bed, table, chair, lamp. You need the lamp because it gets dark. You need the bed because you have to sleep. You need the table because you need somewhere to set things. And you need the chair because you need somewhere to sit. So, and obviously there's can be way more than that in terms of furniture. That's the minimum. But if you look at the house of God, what does it have? It has the table and it has the lamp. But it does not have the bed or the chair. There's no bed in the house of God because God doesn't get tired and sleep. There's no table in the house of God because God doesn't get tired and sit down. And in any case, right, no chair could contain him. No earthly throne would be anywhere near grand enough to represent the seat of power in which the Almighty sits. Also, Hebrews comments on this, the priest is not supposed to sit down. He comes in, he stands in the presence of God to honor God, then he goes out again. He doesn't come into God's house and just take a chair, hang out for a few hours. There's none of that. There's no sitting down 
But Christ, the high priest, comes into the presence of God, offers his own blood, and then sits down at the Father's right hand. So, we've all gone into empty homes at one time or another to tour them. They seem a little strange. But I'm sure, I can say with confidence, you've never been into a home that someone lives in that had no beds and no chairs. That just doesn't work for the human being. This, this tent has no bed and no chair. Finally, there's this door curtain that's mentioned, the outer veil, a screen for the door of the tabernacle, the last two verses of the chapter. There's a way into God's presence, but that way is not wide open. There is a door. Right? God is dwelling with his people, but the emphasis is that you have to have the door open to you. You can't just wander into God's presence anytime. Our church, uh, the church I served in California, had the traditional sanctuary going straight to the back door at the end, and that back door was the street door, the front door of the church. And, and when they started worship, the deacons at that church would open the door and they would leave it open, usually propped open for like the first 10 minutes of worship. As if to say, anybody, whoever's walking down the street, come in here. And the church was built in such a way that the street came straight towards that door and then turned at the last second and went around the church building. It was very much a, come into the church, we're wide open, we receive you, we want you. And I don't know that anybody just wandered in off the street through the open door during the time that I was there, which was only 10 weeks, but... God's tabernacle didn't have the door just propped open to say, come on in. The door is closed. The curtain is down. So what application do we take away from this chapter? The first thing is, in keeping with what I said this morning, the tabernacle is not a sufficient way of access to God. The overwhelming impression you get from this chapter is that I just got buried under a lot of fabric. Because it describes, count them, six different veils, if you will. Well, it describes four different coverings that go over the whole tent. And then it describes a wall, an interior wall, in verse 31, that divides the tabernacle in two. And then in verse 36, it describes one more door curtain that goes over the front of the tent. So this is like a trip to Joanne Fabrics. And if you're not used to that place, it's a little overwhelming. That's the impression left by the tabernacle. Joe Israelite is not allowed in the tabernacle. The chapter doesn't mention this, but it becomes clear as you keep reading. This is not just where the ordinary Israelite can sign up for a time slot and get to go in and see the tabernacle. If you're not a priest... You will never go in here. And of course, as we know, later on through historical development, there got to be so many priests that even if you were a priest, you would serve within the temple one day in your life. It was not your day job where you're in the temple 40 hours a week. Nothing like that. So God is buried under these curtains. You don't get to go in and personally meet with him there. And the tabernacle can't hold many people anyway. Right, 10 by 30 cubits, 
15 by 45 feet, not much bigger, if any, than this building that we're in. That is pretty small. But the other side of that, right, we don't want to walk away saying, well, that wasn't much. The tabernacle is an incredible demonstration of God's love for his people. Right? We all live in houses. Nobody in this church permanently lives in a tent. Some of you go out and enjoy pretending to live in a tent for a few days at a time, but nobody has sold their house and said, wood, concrete, copper pipes, those are ridiculous. I love me a nylon tent. Right? A house is immeasurably superior to a tent. And heaven is immeasurably superior to the nicest house you could ever find. Jesus didn't live in a house and move into a tent. The thing which all of us would be like, uh, no. No, I'm not going to leave my house and move into a tent. Sorry. Jesus didn't leave a house and move into a tent. He left heaven and moved into a tent. God humbles himself. Right? God could be in the tabernacle without leaving heaven. We understand that that's true. But at the same time, God does come and live in the tabernacle. A house is comfortable. Heaven is infinitely more comfortable than the world's nicest house. And God said, I won't just stay in heaven. I will come and be with you in this tent that would collapse in the snow and that probably has a dirt floor and that doesn't have running water and that smells all the time like burning animal flesh. I will join you in your tents. God lives like we do. The truth of the tabernacle is the truth of the incarnation. You can love someone and say, I love you, but I won't live like you. The way you live, it's just, I can't do it. I can't hack it. But in the incarnation, God says, I love you, and I will come live like you. And the tabernacle is a prefiguration of that. God leaves heaven, metaphorically speaking, and moves into this tent and proceeds to be carted around the desert for the next 40 years. And finally, we look at the furniture of the house. The furniture is not there because God needs a lamp, a table, a mercy seat, or an Ark of the Covenant. The furniture is there for us. He furnishes his house for our sakes. Right, you can just make the case that the Ark is his footstool. But beyond that, the other items of furniture are clearly not there because God needs them. They are there because we need them. He doesn't need at the table. He doesn't need the light. He doesn't require the incense. We could say that the veil protects his privacy, but he's invisible anyway. The veil is primarily about demonstrating his holiness, just as the table is about providing bread for his people and the lamp is about providing light for his people. And the incense is about listening to the prayers of his people. Adults, you have those of us with parents still alive, 
You understand how tricky it is to approach your parents and say, uh, <clears throat> I would like to you know, make a small request that you change the furniture in your house for me when I visit. And your parents say, let me think about it. No. My house. I furnish my house the way I want to live. That's human nature. But God doesn't look at his house and say, let me furnish this thing for me. God looks at his house and says, I will furnish this for you. I'm going to load this up with what you need to worship me. God didn't only come to live with his people. He furnished his house for our convenience. So you may not enjoy this passage. You may not say, man, I'm just feeling spiritually dry today. Let me turn to Exodus 26 and read about blue-purple scarlet yarn and fine-twined linen until I'm blue-purple and scarlet in the face. No, But you should adore the God who revealed this chapter to Moses, who told Moses all these things about what his tent was like because he loves you and because he is coming to live with you. He loves you enough to come and live with you here on earth and then to take you to live with him in heaven. The linen, the ram skins, all the rest of it only scratches the surface of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to see your heart in your house. To love you because you love us. I want to live with you, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever because your house is lovely. Because you are lovely. Father, show us your beauty. We thank you for the majesty of the cherubim that guard your heavenly throne. We thank you for the Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes your commitment to keeping your promises to your Son and thus to us. Father, we praise you for the atonement lid, the mercy seat, the place where you forgive our sins. We thank you for your house and its furnishings, and we pray that your Son would now make us into that glorious temple, fit for your habitation. We ask you in his name. Amen.